0: If you're building in the blockchain space, then I want you to know about a company called Blockset. I've been speaking with their team closely and have no doubt that they are going to enable the next wave of developers and business leaders to build amazing applications. Blockset offers accessible data from all major chains through easy-to-use APIs. It acts as your hosted blockchain infrastructure And it ultimately enables high quality apps to be built at a fraction of the cost in a fraction of the time. Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today. Stay tuned for more information later in this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro. And today we have a very special return guest, the CEO of Paxos, Charles Cascarella. Chad, as he's known, came on the show back in September 4th. And we were talking about how that really just seems like a lifetime ago. But I'm really excited to have Chad on the show. Ryan's with us, Ryan Todd. When Chad was on the podcast last time, we talked about the 2008 financial crisis and what a financial crisis in this sort of day and age would look like. And we talked a lot about the pipes and plumbing of Wall Street. And Chad made the point that if we saw another crisis, and he was in the thick of it as an investor back in 2008 at Cedar Hill Capital, and he mentioned that Part of the the reason why the crisis was exasperated was the fact that the plumbing wasn't necessarily in the structure that we needed it to be. And he said, despite some of the new regulations that we have, if there was another financial crisis, we would have some of the same problems that we had 10 years ago because of the infrastructure. What's interesting to me is over the past you know, month and a half, the pipes and plumbing on Wall Street has worked to a various degree in terms of the exchange infrastructure, the settlement infrastructure. There's been some issues with pricing we've seen across different markets and and issues with liquidity. But I kind of want to just start there. I think it's an interesting place to start. In terms of your perspective on the market, Chad, how have things held up in your view? Do you think maybe you were a little too pessimistic, or, or maybe there are corners of the market we're not looking closely at. What's your view?
1: Well, Frank, uh, first, it's great to be back on. I'm really excited to be here again, and I do think it's a, it's a timely conversation to have. Um, I think that uh, in some ways, liquidity and the infrastructure of the system has held up worse than in 2008. It's still very early in this unfolding. So it's really hard to you know kind of give a final grade here. But I think preliminarily, it looks worse. It's hard to tell because there's a feedback loop here between the real economy, which uh, potentially looks like it might hit some of the all-time worst numbers in terms of unemployment and GDP growth, even worse than the depression. Um, so clearly, that is creating a feedback loop with the markets. But just the way the markets responded from a liquidity perspective, to me, looks at least as bad, if not worse, in 2008. And so there are all kinds of examples of where uh, there shouldn't be a liquidity, like a cat bond that is coming due in May that covers hurricane catastrophes. There's no hurricanes between now and May. never has been, unlikely to be. That bond is guaranteed to pay off, but yet it suddenly went to a crazy yield. Or treasury securities started to, even though they're equally good. Treasury securities, the government is behind all of them. If one was less liquid than the other, it began to have a significantly different yield. So there became all kinds of dislocations um, that you wouldn't expect to see. Now, those are purely liquidity issues, but there's actual underlying plumbing issues as well. And that's exacerbated because as there's more volatility, you get more capital calls. And because settlement takes days to happen, the capital calls begin to cascade and create real stresses within the system. Now, clearly, no one has failed yet like Lehman Brothers. Now, we can't say that that's not going to happen. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But in order to make sure that no one even comes close to failing, the scale of liquidity the Fed is putting in really dwarfs 2008. The balance sheet is expanded by trillions of dollars in only a matter of a month or so, uh, which is really unprecedented. So lots of unprecedented things happening. Some of them are real economy problems. Uh, There's nothing that can be done about that. But if you had different plumbing, you could have much better transmission mechanisms. And let me give you an example of what that could look like. There's been all this press around the small business administration giving loans through the banks to people who qualify. And it's been a real mess. Some people can't get through to their banks. The banks can't process them. They can't handle them. But everything is going through the banks and their old technology and the old plumbing. Imagine if you could do something that was based on a blockchain based on a stable coin or even a central bank digital currency, you could really much more easily get money to people. Instead of the IRS trying to mail checks, you could be doing this almost um, instantaneously. You could really have gotten help to where it's needed immediately, as opposed to waiting for it to get through intermediaries. Now, that's not the same thing as a trade taking two days to settle, but it's kind of the same thing because it's a stimulus check check taking many weeks to settle. And that shouldn't happen either.
0: I'd like to set the stage... Before we dive into some of these plumbing issues that you're describing, trading conditions often sort of deteriorate as volatility increases. But to your point, what we've seen has been pretty unprecedented and significant. You, you mentioned U.S. Treasuries, right? The largest, most liquid bond market in, in the globe, right? Uh, kind of viewed as the bedrock or foundation of global finance suffering an incredible drought. Um, There was a really interesting piece in the Financial Times that I'm sort of looking at right now penned by Robin Wigglesworth, one of their really great reporters, where he talked about this liquidity collapse. And so in terms of this unprecedented liquidity, when we think about the root cause, he talks about the fact that banks not being able to trade in a proprietary fashion as being one reason why liquidity has has dried up that was sort of a regulation put in place to keep the banks from you know acting in an inappropriate fashion you talk about the pipes and plumbing also playing a role let's let's dig in a little bit into that in addition to proprietary trading not being on the table for banks what specific pipes and plumbing issues you think could have played into you know, let's say U.S. Treasuries, right? How could blockchain have made this avoidable?
1: Yeah. And I think there's a couple issues here. Clearly, there's a real economic, real economy side economic problem. And it's created a huge amount of uncertainty. So anytime you have pricing model uncertainty, you have forecast model uncertainty, um, anytime you have inability to like understand volatility, you create like a perfect uh, storm of endogenous risk. And you know, people don't know how to deal with endogenous risk because almost all the models that people use to price things don't even believe there can be endogenous risk. So it's kind of a perverse world. And um, you just can't tell what is going to happen in the real economy. So that makes people need to have a um, higher risk premium on any type of security. Basically, People want to get paid more to hold securities because they don't know what the future is going to be. But what happened is because of this uncertainty and less liquidity, it created some real feedback loops. And I think essentially the piece that you're describing is saying, wow, we should really let the banks be able to trade on a proprietary basis. There would be more liquidity. And I think that's absolutely true. There would be more liquidity. On the other hand, you get a lot of negative possibilities, which is that the banks could take risks that they don't understand because their pricing models wouldn't work. You could have a number of issues around uh, customers being taken advantage of. We saw a lot of that in the, in the uh, financial crisis. So there's a lot of uh, risks, unfairness, that was trying to be addressed by changing the rules. Maybe they worked, maybe they didn't. But in essence, I actually think the heart of what he's saying is there's not enough liquidity. Let's let the banks use leverage to provide more liquidity. And when we're talking about how you could change the plumbing, the actual root cause solution should be not how to have more leverage create liquidity but how to create less risk to create more liquidity and you can create less risk in the system by knowing where your assets are and i think that's what a blockchain does know who owns what when and that would be really powerful because a lot of the locking up that we've seen were in basic markets where people were afraid because of the way the plumbing works to do trades so i'll give an example a very common way that banks and brokers fund themselves is in the repo market. Almost no one knows what a repo is. It's really a fancy way of saying I'm going to lend to you and you're going to give me some collateral. Fairly basic concept. It has a, a name that makes it sound a little more opaque. Okay. Now the problem is if I don't know if you're going to be around tomorrow, I'm afraid to give you a loan even though it's collateralized because the loan against the collateral doesn't move instantaneously. I can't give you the cash and you send me the collateral at the exact same moment of time. If you could, I would feel a lot better about making that loan. But instead, there are lags. And that lag means that you could be out your money before you get the collateral or you could be out your collateral before you get the money. And so these plumbing issues that seem innocuous when times are good become debilitating when you're worried that someone might fail. And so the Fed had to basically step in and say, you know, the Fed's not going to fail. We're going to stand in the middle of all these transactions. And I think that's terrible. It is the absolutely only solution that could work. But it's ultimately a terrible one because we could have solved this and we should solve this. You can solve this with technology. We can solve this without having to allow the banks to lever up more. We can solve this without having to create conflicts of interest amongst the banks by allowing more access to the financial system because anybody can understand that someone else is not gonna fail because assets and payments are moving at the exact same time all the time. And so you could have a fundamentally different system right now today, and we would have a much less extreme situation in markets. It doesn't mean it would go away. You know, Like I said before, the real side economy is having a problem, but why should you have these follow-on effects that happen every single time there's any problem in the economy? It's kind of ludicrous that we basically have to backstop the entire financial system anytime something goes wrong because we don't know if someone is going to fail.
0: So your point is there are many different levers at play here in terms of what can cause a liquidity crunch or issues within the financial landscape. This notion that we don't have different assets settling in real time is part of the problem I think you're describing um you guys recently got not only approval but you went live with your blockchain settlement platform walk us through it's it's super nascent right now with a few participants and it's not necessarily um it's not necessarily been tested to the point of seeing how it could play out if it was something across wall street but looking at the early uh, signs right now, how could a platform like this remedy or ameliorate some of the issues you're describing?
1: Yeah, um, I think that's an important question. Because when you sit and have a transaction in the financial markets, you agree to a trade. And then at some later point, you agree to settle the trade. And that's kind of surprising because most trades are happening electronically, So you think the settlement is happening nearly simultaneously electronically, but it's not. In fact, it's really almost like kind of closing on a house uh, where, you know, you agree to the price, but then you don't close for 30 or 60 days. It's multiple days, and it just depends on the security. And so that builds up risk in the system. And our premise has been that you can use blockchain to solve these types of risks by enabling assets to be able to be moved and the payments be moved in a programmatic way. And because you can do that, you can actually really increase access to financial markets which has been restricted because you don't know if someone's going to fail. So you're always going through intermediaries because in essence, the intermediary is always vouching for you and providing leverage. So you need more and more larger institutions to stand in the middle as you get closer and closer to the markets. When we look at us equities, this is a perfect example of a market where there's less and less brokers since the crisis, there's more and more risk controls in place. And so it's harder and harder for smaller institutions to be able to access the markets. And that's meant that something like uh, 80% of the volume is in like the 10 or 15 largest broker-dealers, uh, U.S. equities trading volume. I think you know, there are some natural reasons why that happens, but it's amazing level of concentration that has resulted since the crisis. And there's a huge amount of competition that's driving down trading costs, but it hasn't driven down the clearing and settlement costs and what could fundamentally change the risk profile of the markets itself. That's where Paxos comes in. So we want to be financial market infrastructure. We're providing this financial market infrastructure for all kinds of assets where we take them and we remove the friction to put them into a blockchain environment and allow them to move really quickly to solve these problems. And so we got a no action letter from the SEC that allows us to settle real live U.S. equities trades in a limited number of stocks. It's a limited amount of volume during the no action period. And simultaneously, we're working on getting a clearing agency registration. And that clearing agency registration is what allows us to then be able to open this up to all stocks and all volume sizes. And so we're really looking forward to that. That's not going to be until sometime next year. I think in the early part of next year, we'll get that clearing agency registration. In the meantime, though, right now we have Credit Suisse and uh, Instanet, who's owned by Nomura, that are settling trades with us. Even today, every day, we're, we're settling trades. And Uh, We'll hopefully have SockGen onboarded and fully integrated shortly. And um, we have another couple of firms that have verbally agreed to join. We'll hopefully be able to announce them soon. And the whole point is to basically build up a number of firms that are starting to be able to use a blockchain settlement mechanism that allows them to be able to move their assets, which are equities, and move their payments, which are dollars, immediately and lower the risk that each one of those firms has to each other. And so using the system frees up about 80% of the costs from a transaction perspective and 80% of the capital. Big savings, billions and billions and billions of dollars of capital costs, an enormous change to how the markets could operate and who could take advantage of them.
0: A lot of the people listening who might be casual market observers using Robinhood or trading through their broker Might not know that even though they execute a trade and that trade is executed in less than a blink of an eye, the settlement process behind that, right? We talk about T plus two, two days, meaning the money from the sellers to the buyers is sort of stuck in that plumbing for 48 hours, uh, which is a lifetime if you think about how fast trading happens electronically to your point. In terms of the platform as it is now, we talk about the cost savings and the speed that it brings, but just real quickly before we expand on to other topics, can this thing scale? And as you've seen, maybe volumes increase. I know there's that threshold, but are you seeing the same speed and efficiency and cost savings, or do you anticipate the same speed and cost savings? as that threshold for how many stocks can settle through it increases.
1: Yeah. So I actually think as we have more volume and more stocks going through the system, the benefits increase because you have more volume going through, the easier it is to be able to net down trades between participants, and the easier it is to allocate the fixed costs of running the system across all the volume. So it actually gets easier as we get bigger. that's in terms of the savings. Now, the process itself is clearly going to be more stressed if you have the volume that's going through the markets now go through any type of blockchain system. And so we've deliberately chosen to put this on a private blockchain as the initial step. And I hope at some point in the future, a public blockchain could handle the level of volume that we would be talking about. The fact is none can right now. You know, they're all fairly full, so to speak on their transaction per second processing speed. But there are private uh, blockchains that are able to do hundreds, in some cases, thousands. And in, in one or two instances, I've seen tens of thousands of transactions per second. And that would absolutely be able to handle, once you get to somewhere between several thousand to uh, 15,000 transactions per second, the full volume of the U.S. market. And so I this is going to take time. Private chains can can realistically do it. Public chains can't. It'll happen over time uh, that you get to that point. And I think you really even get more benefits than when you have stocks on a public blockchain because you can enable more peer-to-peer movements of securities. You could create decentralized exchanges. You can really fundamentally shift market structure. But I think this is about a a journey. You're not gonna get there overnight. This is an asset class that is uh, whatever it is, 35 or $40 trillion. I mean, it's an enormous asset that people are trading in the most liquid capital markets in the world. You wanna make sure that you're gonna be highly reliable before things continue to evolve. So I think it'll happen. I know that we can handle it in the current iteration of what we're talking about, but I'm very optimistic about not just the current iteration, but that more blue sky vision, which is about a public blockchain handling the movement of these securities. And frankly, a lot of other ones too.
2: Chad, to that point, uh you know this is something that we've heard now from a touted use case for blockchain within financial services is on the settlement side i mean i've been seeing arguments for this as back as 2014 2015 from large banks exploring the use case obviously it's 2020 now what's been the biggest hold up to preventing uh further buy-in and i'm wondering what type of regulatory Clearance is still needed to see more participants be, be willing to, to work with this type of system.
1: Well, I think there's a couple of components here. The first is capital markets are large and they're highly regulated. And that means that they're not something that's easy to address. Unregulated small markets can be migrated very quickly. You have a whole network effect that's been built around the way the world exists now. And so a lot of the complexity is, how do you bridge from the way it is now into a future state? It's really easy to design a future state, but the actual real trick is the migration effect. And so, frankly, we've been working on this for a very long time, uh, over four years now. And we got the no action letter that's allowed us to now take the step of being live, settling real live trades in the market. Were the I think, the first ones to do anything like that, certainly in the U.S. equities markets, but I think really probably broadly where you're you know, really handling third-party trade settlement. And to migrate that from small amounts into larger amounts, in the case of the U.S. equity markets at least, requires additional regulatory approval. So the no action letter allows us to operate in a small way, the clearing agency registration. And by the way, there's only really two operating clearing agencies in the U.S., the OCC, which handles option collateral, and the DTC, which happens to manage both bonds and equities. There's not many of these. They're very hard to get. Most startups can't do it. We've raised a lot of capital. We have the right type of investors to be able to do this. So it's just not something that you could just go do. In a pilot format, you could do it. Blue sky thinking, you could do it. To turn it into reality on the ground takes a lot of time and a lot of regulatory approval.
0: Settlement's also not the most sexy thing to tackle, but I think what's interesting here is you talk about how this is a process. This isn't something that's going to happen overnight. And the fact of the matter is currently right now in 2020, we are stuck with the financial infrastructure that we have. And so on that note, I kind of want to pivot back to current events because you sent over some interesting prognostications. The subject here is Chad thoughts. And I want to get into some of those Chad thoughts because they're, incredibly interesting. You have a less than rosy view of what is to come, given what what we could see in the economy, a complete freeze over the course of the next months as we grapple with the spread of this virus, a virus that very, very few lawmakers here in the United States um, were prepared for. And we don't have that financial infrastructure that you would hope for but at the same time, the Fed and the government are doing things that we've never seen before in a very over-levered economy. You talk about how you think that there's going to be widespread bank failures that could lead to the nationalization of the banking and insurance sectors. To a degree, with what the Fed's doing, pumping all of this money into Wall Street, we've talked to people, Ryan and I, who would argue that to a degree, the, the banking system has been nationalized. And it's weird that we're seeing this effect under a Republican president. That's a different type of conversation. But in, in what scenari- the credit
2: markets have been nationalized, not the banks yet, the credit the markets. The
0: credit markets, yeah. But in what world do you see um, widespread bank failures uh, panning out?
1: Um, so I kind of break it into three scenarios here. And, um, it's a very fluid situation, which is the first thing I I would stress. It's hard to know where the case count will go. It's hard to know when we could get back to normal. It took Wuhan, whatever it was, 74 days or something, uh, to basically get, get back to normal. Sorry. I don't know if I call that normal to kind of end the lockdown. Um, so I don't know exactly when is New York city going to look like it used to, it might not be until the summertime. So it's hard to know. And uh, that makes it very difficult to forecast exactly what will happen here. Now there are a lot of people who have gone about trying to forecast it in a number of ways. Uh, and that's what will lead to different scenarios. I think Morgan Stanley, for instance, is minus, I think well, I think 38% GDP growth for the second quarter. Uh, Goldman is something like minus35. Uh, one of the Fed presidents Bullard, St. Louis Fed, uh, I think said minus 50% GDP. I've seen a number of different analyses of where unemployment could go to. I think it's, you know, somewhere between 16% to almost 30% unemployment all seem plausible, I would guess probably low 20s. That's all worse than the Great Depression. And now maybe we bounce back. So that's the next question is how bad is it going to be on the way down? And then how fast do you bounce back? And that's also really hard to know. And there's a lot of different estimates maybe it'll happen fast, maybe it'll happen slow, uh, but it could continue on um, at a pretty negative rate. And if it does, then this would definitely look like GDP worse than Uh, GDP growth worse than some of the worst years of the Great Depression. Now, I don't think it'll last 10 years like the Great Depression, so maybe it won't quite be like that, but that means this is worse than 2008. And that's really significant because we saw what happened in 2008. Uh, There are a lot of bank failures, a lot of general failures, a lot of losses, um, a lot of economic hardship. And so I think we have to be prepared with the mindset that a lot of different things are now possible that were previously considered tail risks. And so these still might be tail risks, but they are they may be gravitating into the realm of from kind of improbable to maybe just implausible. And then is it even possible that they could, in fact, happen? And so I think it's basically you could have too hot, uh, meaning the government puts in too much stimulus to try and fill the hole. Uh, you could uh, end up just right, kind of Goldilocks, or you could end up in something that is too cold, meaning they... they either can't get enough stimulus to fill the hole, or they can't get it in enough time. And there's a question of what is that hole? We were just talking about how much the GDP can track by. I've seen a variety of estimates for a minus $4 trillion hole to a 6 or $7 trillion hole. Those are really big numbers. And quite frankly, the stimulus so far isn't even close to that. That $2 trillion bill is actually mostly made up of loans, some of them forgivable. Most are not forgivable. That's not necessarily positive. More debt doesn't necessarily solve a problem, especially if it's not forgivable debt, and a lot of the payments aren't getting there in time. So, I think a lot more needs to be done in order for us to hit the Goldilocks scenario. And so, what does a too hot scenario look like? It could be you know there's an overreaction um, that it not, not enough has been done, and we do another two or three trillion dollars, and we come out relatively uh, clear in the summer, and the Fed is at zero, and they've printed several trillion or $3 trillion or more. And there's, you know, four or $5 trillion of stimulus and everything begins to overheat. And you could really get some, you could get a potentially like very high inflation rate Uh, that would be too hot. And then there could be a scenario where it's too cold and that's, they can't fill this hole that's very large in enough time, or maybe they just can't uh, fill it at all. It's just not big enough, uh, the stimulus. And then you could have some real problems because the banking system only has $2 trillion of capital on it. So if you had a hole that's four or five or six trillion or seven trillion, that is a big hole. That's bigger than all the capital in the financial system. And the banking system is only one way things work. We also use lending markets and debt markets, but the banks are still really, really important. And you could really start to take losses across the real economy that then reverberate back to the banks because they're the ones who are lending to the real economy. And that's actually what happened in the Great Depression. And in that scenario, it's potential that the banks are taking such big losses that they end up having to be nationalized. You may even have a bank holiday, potentially. And um, and you could even go on deeper to follow that scenario even further along. So those are possible options. And I'm not giving a per se, you know, percentage risk on it, but those are options. And I think there are actual ways to protect yourself in case those options come to happen and come to pass and certainly hope it doesn't come to pass but i think it's wise to be thinking about it now and to plan for it and i am also really positive by the way that no matter which scenario happens the u.s is going to come out in a great place it's a better place to live than any other country it's more entrepreneurial it has better resources it has a better way of operating than any other place even though you know we all know the warts there not a better place to be and so i'm really bullish so don't take this as me being um you know some kind of really negative uh person or a gold bug per se but i also want to make sure that everyone can think about these scenarios and protect against them and i think there are ways to do that so one way to do it is if you if you have balances in a bank over the FDIC insured limit you know you probably want to hold t-bills instead you can, the ways you can do that, you can open up a Treasury Direct account. You can come to Paxos. You can open up an account and hold PAX dollars. It's generally backed just by T-bills or FDIC insurance. You can hold gold. You can hold gold physically. You can hold gold through a brokerage account. I think that's a little bit more risky. You could go buy PAX gold. We have gold that's fully allocated, that's held in the blockchain. You can be self-sovereign of your own gold, and it relates to a bar in a Brinks account. And you know you could also own some people think is the ultimate new gold, which is Bitcoin. And so I think there are ways that can protect you. If it's too hot and there's too much inflation, you want to own Bitcoin or gold. And if it's too cold and there are bank failures, you probably want to hold Bitcoin or gold too. So I think that it's just maybe logical to think about having those things as part of your portfolio. And you should weight them based on what you think the chances are that any of these scenarios could happen.
0: If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, BlockSet, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. BlockSet is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. If you were back at Cedar Hill Capital, how would you be playing this market right now? Would you be adding to your exposure in Bitcoin or in gold?
2: And what would be your thoughts too, just to, just based on how the markets reacted over the past two weeks and, and kind of when you consider that markets are forward-looking and I think what, they're up over 25% now from the bottom? I don't know. It might be higher now.
0: I called that bottom, by the way.
2: I called it. <laughs> Frank did. Frank did. Much too... Our dismay. <laughs> uh,
1: well, he has bragging rights. Um, <laughs> so, look, markets don't go down in a straight line. And they went down faster and farther than has ever happened before. So I'm not surprised to see the markets bounce. And uh, what the markets, I think, are trying to digest now is we're probably at about peak cases. Like, for instance, in the United States, thereabouts, maybe in the next couple of days. And so what happens from there? Is it going to be is this not going to be as bad as people thought? is the Fed throwing in enough money and the government can throw enough money that it's all going to be okay. And maybe it looks like a Goldilocks scenario or even a too hot scenario, in which case equities is a good thing to own. In too hot scenario uh, with inflation, equities will go up. So I think the market's grappling with trying to price these things just like everybody else is. And as I was describing it, and it's not uncommon uh, for you to have very significant rallies in a bear market. And it's not uncommon to have uh somewhere between 50 to even two thirds of a retracement of a move. Um, Very common, you know, for these things to uh, whip around because uh, the future is so uncertain. And I think people got really bearish and the markets always try and cause the most pain to the most number of people. And sometimes that means going up even when things are not that good. And so I don't know exactly how to forecast the future at this point because it's so uncertain. My gut is that, the market is probably responding to a lot of stimulus and less bad news for the moment in time. And that's usually bullish. But I think that as we go through the next several weeks here, we're going to get a much better sense. And I suspect that it was probably going to end up being worse than people thought from an employment and economic perspective. And it'll really have to come down to the policy response to whether or not that means the markets go down or markets go up. So I know that's a little bit of a wishy-washy answer but that's because the market itself as equities can do well if things get too hot, it could do well in Goldilocks. It would not do well in too cold. And so I think there's a better way to be positioned, which is not having to necessarily prognosticate. And it may become really obvious. Maybe the market realizes all the way back to the highs and the, everything looks terrible and you'd be like, Oh, it's obvious you should get out of the stock market. But usually you don't get those types of options. I think instead what is a better way to position oneself is to stay protected, by being in T-bills, um, or you know, to plug what we're doing, PAX dollars, which are basically backed by T-bills. And so you now have cash that is not a loan to a bank. It's a, a loan to the US government. Now that should be you know, more or less money good as a way to protect yourself in the uncertainty that exists right now. And if things become more obvious, you could deploy that cash. And then if you hold gold, um, and I think holding PAX gold is the most liquid way to hold allocated gold, if you buy gold, and you put it in your backyard. It's really cumbersome. They're charging you twenty or thirty percent premiums to buy physical gold right now, and then take you know taking it and going back to the to the gold dealer is really expensive too. You can buy Pax Gold, and you're buying it at institutional prices based off London, uh, the London market, and it's sitting in a Brinks account. It's great, and you can own the gold yourself. I think that's a great protection if things are too hot or if things are too cold. And then there's Bitcoin. So I think. You get these kind of, um, which can be very volatile, but I think it'll be volatile to the upside in case of Bitcoin, if there's if there's inflation. I mean, I think it'll be the, it'll, uh, people own Bitcoin because they think it will become gold. Bitcoin is not gold yet, but it could become gold. And that potential to go from not gold to gold is a big price appreciation. And it would happen in a time of a lot of fear, either of inflation or of defaulting. So I actually think you can be really well positioned for a lot of scenarios uh, by holding Bitcoin and gold and cash and having minimal exposure to the market doesn't mean that that's my investment advice. But I actually think that is a way I would want to be positioned. That's the way, frankly, I am positioned. But everyone could put different probabilities on these scenarios and come up with a different portfolio.
0: Well, you brought up gold. So I think it'd be interesting to dig into what we've been seeing in that market. Um, Earlier this month, we saw reports of historic shortages in small gold bars and coins and we we wrote a piece about this and reached out to you guys about how you you guys were sourcing gold for Pax Gold and whether or not you were running into any difficulties sourcing gold given border lockdowns and the like your competitor Tether Gold had some issues that sources described to me in getting gold into Switzerland how are you able to maintain that sourcing of gold and how do you get ahead of possible sourcing issues?
1: Yeah. Um, what happened in the gold market is actually not that much different than happened in other places and other industries, which is basically businesses shut down. And in this case, in the gold market, yeah. it was the refiners. Yep. And, you know, generally Switzerland's a good place to be located in the gold business because there's a lot of refiners based in Switzerland, but they shut down, they stopped minting uh, gold uh, bars. Now, the downside of not being in London and whether it's Switzerland or any other market is those are not where the gold market uh, natively trades. They are secondary markets and they're all based off of London and they're not held as a liquid tradable market. It's really kind of a buy and hold market. And so in Switzerland, they happen to use kilo bars in New York here. The futures market uses 100 ounce bars. Asia, uh, uses kilo bars. So they use different things in London, which is the key market for trading gold. It's 400 ounce bars. And there are, um, I think 7,000 tons of gold in the London market, generally all 400 ounce bars. So if there's no new bars that are minted, it's no big deal for uh, London. And that's why if you're based off London gold, you're buying gold uh, front and putting in a Brinks account, a uh, depository account in London, you are in very good shape because it's very easy to go sell that gold and it's very easy to buy that gold because there's so much gold sitting
0: around. I think that was best illustrated by the fact that we saw a dislocation in the price of gold between New York and London. I think it was this. This was a report from April seventh, so. What's today? The eighth. Is today the eighth? Yeah. You lose track of the day. So this was yesterday. Gold was trading fifty dollars more expensive in New York than London, um, which is which is pretty fascinating. And we even saw dislocation in the price of Tether Pax Gold relative to the underlying. Why do you think, aside from these issues of moving it around, we're seeing that dislocation in in these stable coins?
1: Well, I think there's two components here. The price of gold is based on the location of where gold is. And so the New York futures market, which is trading off 100-ounce bars, there's just not enough 100-ounce bars in New York. And so it's a hedging mechanism. It's a synthetic gold product. It's not real gold. And in, in time, of normal times, that's not a big deal because nobody wants to actually take delivery of the gold. But
2: mm-hmm. if you
1: actually want delivery of the gold and there's no gold, the price of the futures market has to go up enough to compensate you to fly the gold from London or to basically move it on a, a boat to London in order to make delivery. That's basically the the location difference between New York and London to move 400 ounce bars and to then turn them into a uh, good for delivery bars, which is hundred ounce size. And to do all of those machinations cost a certain amount of money. And so that's why the futures market dislocated because there isn't enough gold in New York for people to take delivery and it's trying to force gold to get to New York. And I think now Tether's a little bit different situation. You know, I had to assume that, you know, unlike their stable coin, their gold coin is actually backed one for one. Uh, So let's just assume that. The difference really also still comes down to you have gold based in Switzerland, and that Switzerland gold, if you can't get the right type of gold there, you have to be able to make the price go up enough to get it, it to flow from London to Switzerland. And so that's why... Being in London, which is the most liquid uh, market, that is the um, trading hub for spot gold in the world, is the logical place to be if you're creating a, a stable coin. And that's why we did it that way. Um, I think there are interesting things about Switzerland, there's interesting things about New York, but at the end of the day, that's not really the gold market. When you talk about the price of gold, you talk about the London fix, which is like the one time a day when everyone agrees on what the price is globally that you base everything off of and there's concentrating all day long, it is probably the most liquid market of any single location, not just for gold, but for any commodity. Huge liquidity. You could easily trade $50 million just like that in one second um, without having any kind of price slippage. Mm. Um, you know, Really very, very deep in liquid markets. And so when our clients want to come in and trade, we can get them the best prices, and we can make sure that the gold is there.
0: And you're clearly seeing an, a spike in interest in that product, given... What we're seeing in terms of this increased appetite for safe haven assets, thinking about safe haven assets for a second or turning to them you you talked about America coming out of this crisis strong whenever we do this unique health and financial and, and economic crisis, how does Bitcoin come out of it? This digital asset that so many people have you know exalted as this potential safe haven given how it's been in lockstep with the S&P for the past month, and we haven't seen that breakout happen yet. If we're going to put our crystal ball in front of us right now, how does it come out of this crisis? And if it doesn't come out as this sort of uncorrelated asset, does that then, you know, rain on the parade?
2: Weaken the value prop. Yeah.
0: In perpetuity.
2: Well,
1: I, there's a couple components to this. Um, I think, You know, I really definitely believe America is going to come out of this stronger. I think being in a position where you can clear the decks and be able to uh, reset things and then move forward is a hallmark of our system. I think we've been trying to hold that kind of reset off for a long time, including the last uh, bunch of years since the financial crisis. And I think that's probably been a mistake. But I think at the end of the day, we're very resilient. The natural gifts of the people who are here and the location that we live in is Just really hard to to quantify, but absolutely uh, something I believe in. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't come up with better ways to do things. And I clearly think that whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, blockchain in general, is starting to show that it's able to move through yet another crisis. It was birthed out of the last crisis, and it's moving through this this crisis very, very well. The networks are handling the volume. They're managing a lot of different volatility that's going on. Um, And so I think that is a very important proving ground as we move to the next phase of adoption. Now, having said that, everyone wants Bitcoin to be, you know, kind of negatively correlated, but even gold is not negatively correlated right now. And that's because I think we've entered a time that's a little bit different right now than maybe this uh, standard non-correlated asset viewpoint would generally hold because you've had liquidation going on. You haven't had risk on, risk off, which is kind of like, hey, if you really uh, think an asset is going to do well uh, when everyone's bullish, you should buy it and uh, you should buy assets that will go up when people are bearish, right? And so maybe Bitcoin, you should buy Bitcoin because it's a good asset to own when people are bearish. But when liquidation is going on, which is that people are getting margin calls that are over levered. And by the way, there's so much leverage in the Bitcoin world now, options and futures and all these different things. Uh, people trading on crazy leverage. You have leverage and people are getting calls on their stock trading. They're getting calls on their bond trading. These same people are trading Bitcoin now. There's no difference. And so there's leverage and you get liquidation and people are selling everything because you got to meet margin calls. And I think that's what happened. Everything went to the same correlation. Even gold got hit a lot. It was down $200 from here in a really puzzling way. And so were bonds. Everything was getting sold.
0: Except for cash. Except Cash turned out not to be trash. Poor Ray was
1: moment, Yeah, exactly. Whatever, Poor Ray, Ray Dahlia. Yeah, I think he walked it back in his, his last Reddit talk. But at the end of the day, let's set aside for a moment, the moment in time where you had liquidation going on and we exit liquidation and we enter more into a more stabilized world. I think you have to go back to the concept that I believe Bitcoin and people own Bitcoin because they think it is going to become gold. And that process of going from not gold to gold, digital gold, um, is a lot of price appreciation, like a big bull market. And I think that's more likely to happen than ever. But of course, a lot of people see that there's a lot of leverage It makes it very volatile. And it's not the only thing you should own. It's still not gold yet. Bitcoin is absolutely still not gold. And by the way, it's not guaranteed to be gold. So it's going to have to be volatile because you're discounting all types of possible futures.
0: And in that process, we will wait. We will see what the next trash will be. <laughs> I think it's such an interesting conversation, blending traditional market commentary with the promise of blockchain technology, the promise of of Bitcoin and just a great dissection of the market. I can't believe
2: it's already been 50 minutes. I know.
0: Yeah, this was this was an excellent conversation. And Chad, we appreciate you coming on. We could probably go on and on. At some point, we'll have you back on to sort of review over some of your prognostications. And and we appreciate it.
1: It's great being on again. Um, Every time we have these conversations, I'm surprised how fast time flies and uh i'm looking forward to the next one hopefully everything looks a little bit more rosy than it does right now
0: we definitely hope so thanks chad for coming on
1: thanks chad thank you
0: this podcast is about pushing awareness and inspiring growth in the crypto industry i can't reiterate enough that if you're a business owner executive or active developer in the space I highly suggest checking out Blockset. Blockset provides a robust, unified API that provides easy access to multi-chain data. Skip the tedious data normalization process and start building immediately at a fraction of the cost. It's live now and it's on their site for you to explore. Go sign up for a free account at Blockset.com and start building today.